Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 23rd, 2020, and this is show number 772. When this week's programming by Stealth, Bart takes us through the penultimate hat that JavaScript wears, and that's regular expressions. Luckily, since we haven't talked about regular expressions in ages, he reminds us of the syntax for regular expression literals in JavaScript first, and then he takes us through three common uses for regular expressions. We joked around during this episode at how many times I said, well, that makes sense. Bart said it was music to his ears, and I say that this was a very intuitive lesson considering how arcane regular expressions are in their syntax. Bart's tutorial, of course, is linked in the show notes. Back in December, I told you about a really cool utility called Capto. My blog post at the time was entitled Capto, More Than a Screenshot Utility. I was so delighted by the unique and powerful features of what I thought was just this little $20 screen capture utility, but was so much more that I decided to do a screencast for it for Don McAllister's Screencast Online. That was the only way I could teach everything that it can do. There's a teaser video for it in the show notes, and if you like it, maybe you want to join Screencast Online. It is a subscription-based podcast, but you can enjoy a free seven-day trial that might get you hooked. But you probably will be hooked, because the other presenters and me, man, we do an amazing job, if I do say so myself. Let's start off now with one of our CES interviews with one of my favorite companies, Belkin. One of the booths I like to go by every single year is the Belkin booth. I don't know why. I just love you guys. You guys do great stuff. So I'm here with Jen Warren yet again, an annual uh, visit. We get together and hang out. What do you got for us this year? We have so much exciting stuff this year, so I'm really glad you guys stopped by this year. Um, First up, Belkin is officially going into audio. Oh. So we've partnered with um, high-end French audio brands called Divya They're most known for their $3,000 phantom speaker. Oh, yikes. Yeah. And so the thing about their speaker is that they have this technology called push-push. So the subwoofers are reacting against each other. So there's no reverberation. That's what uh, Apple did inside the uh, the new uh, MacBook Pro. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I've actually done a bunch of uh, discussion on that. Very so cool. So imagine that, but massive. Um, but now inside of a Belkin speaker that works with Google Assistant that can be paired with other speakers, but also because it doesn't vibrate, you can wirelessly charge your phone on top. Oops. Oh, nice. So for the uh, audio-only listeners, this looks like a, a, a smart speaker up to a point. It looks like a HomePod coming up to a certain point, and then it's got a little slant to it, and she just set her phone down in there, and while she's playing music, she can uh, charge her phone at the same time. That's right. So the sound isn't going to come across too great in here, but... Um, now everyone knows your password. She just typed it in. You better change that. <laughs> it's not my phone. <laughs> Even better, it's Matthew's, right? Yeah, right. So, pretty powerful sound, I think, from a little guy. There must be a higher love. All right, we don't want to get our uh, get pulled down, right? <laughs> Not too long. Very good. And uh, yep. when is this going to be available? This is out spring. And it's called the Soundform Elite? Correct. And what's the price point going to be on there? Oh, perfect, perfect. Okay, what yeah. else do we have out here? All right, so um, we talked about audio, so we'll just kind of skip over the other audio stuff. Um, we've got some, let's go to power. I love power. power. These are our new GAN technology power banks. Um, 
Did you say GAN? GAN. That stands for gallium nitrite. Oh, great. And what's cool about it is that you can pack a lot of power into a tiny little space and not have it overheat. So you're looking at these tiny little guys, 30 watts. So these are little watts. little power plugs here? Yes. And 30 watts, 60 watts and 68 watts. So you're talking about a MacBook Pro charger right here. This, I mean, feel it. It's this, so This light. is the size of, you know, how do I do it? It's like an inch by an inch. It's an inch cube. Yeah, and a, a large ice cube. Not the one I had of my drink last night, but uh, and that's got USB-C charging. And that you said you said that's 65 watts. 16. 60. 16. Wow. Oh, 16. 16. Six zero. Six zero. Okay, I'm having trouble hearing in all this noise. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that yeah. is amazing, and it's light. It's so light. Okay, this is a this is a fake model. This has not got it in it. Uh, but that is how much it will weigh. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. So what is this called? It's GAN technology. GAN technology, yeah. and those are, are those on the market yet? Uh, in spring. Okay, I'm gonna come around behind you and follow yeah. along. Okay, this is really cool. This is a three-in-one dock. It's for your iPhone, your Apple Watch, and your AirPods. Okay, so this is a different take on it. Uh, I'm gonna describe it for the audio sure. listener. So there's a small puck standing up for the, uh, for the watch. And then the uh, and then another stand and I I like the stand chi chargers better because you know when you stand it up you've actually got it charging. A yeah. lot of the ones where you lay them flat you're like ah, I don't know and this way you can actually read the read it too yeah, while you've got it sitting on your nightstand or your desk then you can see it you can use it. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, then just kind of a little indented area there for the uh, for the AirPods. Yeah. Very cool. Does that have a name? Uh, yes, this is the Boost Charge 3-in-1 wireless charger for iPhone, Apple Watch, and AirPods. Very, very <laughs> ni nice SEO you got going there, Jen. I love it. I love it. Is that on the market yet? Uh, spring. Spring? Yes, okay, great. Spring. Yep. All right. Now, I'm excited about the Belkin, uh, the smart switch here. Is this, uh, now, is this oh, yeah. under the Wemo brand or Belkin? This is the Wemo brand. So, yep. we bought the original Wemo switch, which was... Uh, I don't know, like four or five inches long. It was a big bulbous thing, stuck out a bunch. Then I got the new sleek one that was maybe three inches long and an inch height. Now I'm holding something that's probably maybe a two-thirds of that size. They're getting yes. smaller. Everything is getting smaller, faster, smarter, and stronger. <laughs> it's just the, that's the way of the world. Now, uh... I, uh, when we were talking to uh, the other guy, what was his name? Matthew. Matthew. Matthew uh, told me that this is only $24.99? Correct. Yes. That's and it fair. works with uh, all the smart home. Up to and including HomeKit. It even has its HomeKit uh, code printed on the side. Which all of the all of the HomeKit companies, the companies that use HomeKit, they go, yeah, go find your original packaging. Right now, I am and the kind of person. I actually do, but oh. <laughs> but but then but like what normal person would do that would right. have that? Yeah, that is fantastic. That is nice. So it works with Google, uh, uh, A Lady, and uh, and lady. with. Hey, Siri A Girl. I say, hey, A Lady and Siri Girl. I like Siri it. Girl. I like it. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Yep. All right, what else we got here? So the Wemo stage, uh, this is essentially a controller for your smart home to set scenes. Oh. So let's say, and that is actually the best part of it, is that you can pick it up and it turns into a remote control. So using a, seri a series of short and long presses on these buttons, you can set your smart home to a certain scene. So it can be movie watching, 
So your lights dim to a certain you know level, or it can be dinner time, and you set up your smart home in a certain way. So this is just a way to control your smart home. Very nice. So uh, what what I just picked up looks like about two thirds the size of an Apple TV remote, and it's stuck into a little magnetic container here. And uh, apparently this looks like it mounts on the wall. Yeah, so any um, Wemo uh, light plate or Decora face plate. Oh, very good, very good. All right, well, it looks like you got, is there anything else here we got to go through? We're you pretty good here. You went to Wi-Fi 6 or? Oh, Wi-Fi 6. Give us some Wi-Fi 6, girlfriend. <laughs> oh, where's it. Matthew? <laughs> oh, yeah, he was supposed to come back. Matthew wandered off. We lost Matthew. Yeah, He's camera shy. The whole point is that we've got a series of Wi-Fi 6 products coming out in 2020 um, in a ver variety of price ranges, depending on what kind of user you are. So is it, So this is under the Linksys brand this then? This is under the Linksys brand, yeah, You guys do everything. Yeah, we do you got everything. got it all. Very yeah. good. Good. All right, Jen, so if people want to find out about all these fine products, where would they go? They can start with belkin.com. Very good. Yep. That's pretty easy. Everybody knows how to spell that. Thank <laughs> you very much, Jen, and we'll see you again next year. Yes, you will. Okay, so my favorite part of the Belkin interview is when she hands me the charger and she's trying to convince me that it's a 60-watt charger, and I keep, keep saying 16. And there's a reason for that why I'm not understanding is I had not yet met Eugene Sheridan from Navitas where he explained about gallium nitride and how all of these chargers were going to start coming out that now were little tiny lightweight chargers and were highly powerful. So that's why I keep going, yo, you mean 16? And she's like, 60. Anyway, I thought that was really funny. I love Jen. I love stopping by to see her every single time. And for some reason, I always end up with some little tech support question that I need help with. And they own Wemo, and we were having a little trouble with our Wemo switches. And so I made one of the guys there help me with it before we uh, before we left the booth. So anyway, I think they're a lot of fun, and I really love Belkin products. I'm a big fan of smart uh, smart locks, and so I found Passive Bolt, and I'm talking to Kabir Maiga. What are you guys showing today? So we brought a home security product that also turns your existing door locking system into a touch activated device that does not rely on fingerprint technology. So when you come home, as long as you have a virtual key that could be on your smartwatch, it could be on your phone, all you have to do is touch your existing deadbolt, it unlocks your home and you go right in. All right, this is an audio podcast too, just like magic. This is the third time I've talked about witchcraft. He just touched this lock and it unlocked. And now it, it unlocks. It unlocked because I was standing next to you with the key, right? Exactly. As long as you have the virtual key with you, all you have to do is touch it and you're good to go. It's really that simple. So it's a home security device that makes your existing lock set easy to operate. How do we do it? Inside the home, all you have to do is install our product, which is Shepard Lock. Two screws takes less than five minutes. Once you do that, your existing lock becomes touch activated. No fingerprints needed. Also, inside your home, guess what? You just touch it when you want to lock and unlock. And it's showing green and then blue? Uh, blue. blue for lock and green for unlock. But remember when I said it was a home security device? Yeah. What it really does is it protects your home. If somebody tries to pick your deadbolt, we can detect that touch activity as well we notify you immediately and we freeze the deadbolt in a locked position so that whoever is trying to beat that lock will not be able to do so. Okay, but it can also be used with a key, right? Absolutely. You maintain your existing physical key and you can still utilize it. So on this side, the on the outside, that's actually 
That's actually an outside deadbolt that was already there, or a key entry that was already you there. Got it. That's, that is correct. There's nothing special about this, nothing and yet I'm touching it. Exactly. Our okay. product works like magic. There's nothing special about your existing lock, but we turn it into a touch Some sort device. of conductivity going on go. here, right? Just the two screws, and then we take over, and we turn this guy into a security device that protects your home, and also an easy-to-operate deadbolt that you just touch and get into your home. Now, is this uh, a connected device? Does it work with any of the smart assistants? Yes. So this is an uh, it's, it's built for interoperability, so it's able to basically integrate your smart home ecosystem, whether it's through Z-Wave, we have a Zigbee variant, and we also support Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Okay, so, but I mean, is that like a HomeKit compatible device, or? Right. So, uh, we're not HomeKit just yet, it's on our roadmap, but we do have Alexa and everybody else. Okay, so you have Alexa and Google, but not HomeKit yet. Right. Okay, but I'm glad it's on the roadmap. Okay, so uh, you could do this through an app. Can I, so I, what if I want to unlock the door for somebody else? Yeah, so so you're, you're a plumber, come to my house, I had to run out to the store and I've been waiting all day for you, I want to let you in. And that's the beauty of our keyless entry technology product. You're able to share virtual keys with anybody on a permanent or temporary basis. You can send them a one-off. They come up to your door, they touch it, it unlocks for them as well. Or, better yet, you could just touch it remotely from your office or from anywhere, really. You could be at a beach somewhere and just, you know, you can unlock it just via your mobile app. Okay, and so I don't right. have to be inside that geofenced area to, to use it then? You do okay. not, no. How do, how do they use the, the uh, uh, you said I, give them, I can give them a code. Right. How do they use the code? There's no touchpad here to type anything in? Right, so once you send them that code, it goes through via text message or email to them. It'll come up as a link. They click that link, it'll put the app on their phone, and that would store the virtual key on their device. Okay, so, so that's what you do up, for like a dog walker or whatever. Exactly. Okay, okay. And or, then you or, can revoke that. Exactly. Or if you're, you know, you own a rental, that's really useful because then you don't have to give out PIN codes. Oh, Because the problem with marvelous. giving out a PIN code is that every time that, you know, renter leaves, you have to change that PIN code or you're exposing your home, right? Right, right, right. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so the company is, or the product is called Shepherd, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, right. -E and the company is Passive Bolt. Uh, is this on the market yet? Yeah, so this is due to be re available to the public in March of 2020, and it'll be at 249, shepherdlock.com and Amazon. Shepherd shepherdlock.com and on Amazon. And, oh yeah, make sure you mention your CS Innovation Absolutely. Award. We're very honored to be one of the, you know, few companies that got honored at CES this year as one of the, you know, greatest innovations hit in the market in 2020. Congratulations. This, is, this looks like a great product and that's a very competitive price. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, if you don't have a smart lock yet, I do have to say that my smart lock is my favorite home automation device. And I, and I mean it. It is the least amount of trouble and gives me the most value. Being able to walk up to my house and have the door simply unlock and then walk away from the house and it locks again, that is magical to me. I love that. Now, I haven't used the keys to my house in literally years. So we were talking in the chat, uh, in the live chat on the show about why there is a touch sensor on the, the shepherd lock. And I think what they're doing there is it's it's definitely not a fingerprint sensor because I touched it and it unlocked. But there have been some locks where people have a problem of their phone is near the front door and the door unlocks when they're inside the house. I have never had that happen. I'm not quite sure why it doesn't happen because it seems like it would by proximity. But anyway, I think that's why they've put a touch sensor is that you actually have to touch it to unlock it. And that way you don't get any accidental unlocks when you don't really want to unlock the front door. But it looked like a really cool device. And I got to tell you, I absolutely love my smart lock. So check out smart locks. They're scary. I know it's scary to trust a lock, but I love my smart lock.
This next story is about how my fans are going bananas on my new 16-inch MacBook Pro. But we can't start with the amazing solution I found in the app TurboBoost Switcher until we back up and learn a bit about computer processors. We're not going to go too deep because we get in way over my head pretty quickly, but we have to go deep enough to provide some understanding that may help you in your computing journey. Once we're done with the lesson, I'll explain my specific problem and then explain how you might like and need TurboBoost Switcher even if you don't have banana fans. When you choose a computer, you'll see information about the CPU family and about the speed of that CPU. CPU stands for Central Processing Unit, which we often just refer to as the processor. Let's use as an example the entry-level iMac that shows that it has a 2.3 GHz Intel Core i5. The CPU family is the Intel Core series, the specific processor line is the i5, and the processor speed is 2.3 GHz. So 2.3 GHz Intel Core i5. The speed in GHz is the clock rate, which is also called the clock speed. The clock speed is the number of cycles per second in which the processor does its operations. If we stay within a given processor line, we can speed up our computations by getting a processor with a faster clock speed. In our entry-level iMac example, a 2.3 GHz Intel Core i5 would be faster than a 2.0 GHz i5. Now, if you try to compare to a different processor family, such as the i3, i7, or i9, then you can't just look at the clock speed to know how fast the machine will go. By the way, for simplicity of discussion, I am going to completely ignore the effect that multi-core processors and multi-threaded processes have on speed. We're just going to be talking about that clock rate. Okay, so we've established that our new 21.5-inch iMac has a clock speed of 2.3 gigahertz. There's more to it than that. Modern CPUs can operate at varying clock speeds. This is a huge advantage from a power consumption perspective. If you're just doodling around writing emails, your CPU doesn't have much to do, so it will actually slow down to a very low clock speed. With a laptop, this is extremely important because it means longer battery life because the processor is consuming less power because it's going slower. Now let's say you decide to watch a video on YouTube. Well, this is a little bit more work, so the processor will increase to a higher clock speed. Then later on, let's say you decide to transcode some video, maybe rendering from Final Cut or ScreenFlow. That's even more work for the processor to do, so it has to speed up even more. In the Intel line of processors, which are in all modern Macs and many PCs, Intel calls this ramp up in speed turbo boost. When you buy a machine, you'll often see two speeds. You'll see the standard clock rate, like our 2.3 gigahertz uh, Intel Core i5, and you'll see the turbo boost rate. So that 2.3 gigahertz iMac has a turbo beast, sorry, turbo beast, turbo boost clock speed of 3.6 gigahertz. Now, for purposes of our discussion, we need to understand when this turbo boost will occur and what factors cause it to engage. According to Intel, availability and frequency upside of Intel Turbo Boost Technology 2.0 state depends on a number of factors, including but not limited to the following type of workload, number of active cores, estimated current consumption, estimated power consumption, and processor temperature. Basically, if you're demanding a lot of your computer, you could see the process speed, the processor speed ramp up and for short bursts, even reach the top turbo boost speed. You won't see it sit at turbo boost speed for a long time. That's just kind of a peak value. 
Now, I use the tool iStep Menus from Django to monitor the speed of my processor and many other metrics. If you're not already running iStep Menus, you really should check it out. By the way, it's available in Setup too if you have a subscription. So, bottom line is that Turbo Boost sounds like a really good thing. Save my battery when I'm just fooling around, but when I'm transcoding video or doing other such heavy lifting, give me all the power. Now, there are some side effects to Turbo Boost. When the processor speeds up, it generates more heat. It's not good for the processor to get too hot, though, so at some point, the fans will speed up to maintain a safe CPU temperature. All of this, I've told you, makes perfect sense. You ask the CPU to do more work, it speeds up, it heats up, and macOS tells the fans to speed up and cool it back down. We are now, finally, to the problem to be solved. For years, I've been using a 15-inch MacBook Pro hooked up to a CalDigit Thunderbolt 3 dock. From there, I hang a bunch of peripherals off the dock, including my 27-inch LG 5K display via Thunderbolt. I recently swapped out the 15-inch for the 16-inch MacBook Pro, connecting it to the same dock and peripherals I've been using for a long time. I demand a lot of my computers, like right now when I'm doing the live show, because I'm recording into Hindenburg, I'm broadcasting my video and my audio through Chrome to Mimo Live and onto YouTube, I route my audio from my mic and Hindenburg back to Discord and YouTube using Audio Hijack, plus a plethora of other less demanding applications. If you ever want to descend into madness by reviewing all of the hardware and software I mixed together for this, there is, of course, a link to a diagram in the show notes. But when I'm not doing the live show, the load on my Mac is often quite light. My processor just hums along at a low clock speed, and the fans are nice and quiet at under 2,000 RPM. I should mention that the 16-inch MacBook Pro I bought has eight processor cores, and it's the top-of-the-line Intel Core i9 rated at 2.4 GHz and has a turbo boost of 5 GHz. With that much power available, it's really hard for me to come close to stressing the computer. Under normal operations, when I'm not recording, I'm using well under 5% of the power of this machine. But for some reason, my fans are kicking in when I'm not doing any heavy lifting. I use Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba to route audio around my Mac and to sweeten my sound when doing recordings. It barely stresses this computer to have it on and running. I'll see a quick pop-up to use maybe 12% of my CPUs, and then it quickly settles back down to around 3% again. This is not a labor-intensive app. However, I noticed shortly after getting the 16-inch MacBook Pro that my fans would go bananas when I fired up Audio Hijack and practically nothing else. The app does do a nice little animation to show the flow of audio to the different devices and apps it's routing, but other than that, it's not really doing any heavy lifting. Using my old pal iStat Menus, I was able to monitor the fan speed and see it jump from under 2,000 RPM before engaging Audio Hijack to over 5,000 RPM. I haven't done a decibel test, but the 16-inch fans at 5,000 RPM are stupid loud. Want to hear it? I knew you did. Okay, that may have gotten uh, cranked up louder than it really did sound because of the way I level my audio, but it's still really annoying when you're just sitting there and the all of a sudden, it's terrible. When this started to happen, I took a look at the graph for CPU die temperature in iStat menus, and sure enough, it had ramped up incredibly quickly, which explains the speed up of the fans. Likewise, I took a look at the CPU speed, and sure enough, 
Clearly, Turbo Boost had kicked in. As I explained up front, all of this is completely normal if you're putting a heavy load on your Mac, but I am not under these conditions. So why is the processor speeding up? I wish I knew the answer to this question, but as of right now, I do not know. I shot off a note filled with lovely graphs to my little friends at Rogue Amoeba. They got back to me right away that they agreed this was quite odd. At the time, they didn't have any 16-inchers to test with, and they weren't sure what was going on. Because remember, I had a 15-inch MacBook Pro doing the exact same thing, and I didn't have that problem. I have to say that the fan noise has been so bad that I had to abandon my beloved audio hijack when making videos for screencasts online. That's okay for my audio-only shows because of the orientation of my mic versus the laptop itself. It's actually pointed directly away from the laptop, so it's fine. But for recording screencasts, I use the monitor on the laptop as the recorded screen, so I have to be up close and personal to it, and the fan noise comes right on through on that mic. Being motivated to figure this out, because noise is the last thing you want to do when doing an audio recording, I did some experiments. I can't explain why this is true, but this big ramp up in CPU, speed, temperature, fans only occurs with Audio Hijack when I have the Mac connected to the dock and thus the 5K monitor. If I unplug the dock and the monitor, my Mac does not turbo boost with Audio Hijack. Now, it seems that the problem must be related to graphics because the monitor has to be involved in the plot for it to go this badly, but I can't really just stop using my external monitor and dock. Several months have gone by, and the Rogue Amoeba folks have told me that they can now replicate the problem on their 16-inch MacBook Pros, but they still don't know why it's happening. The only thing they could think of to test was to minimize the window for audio hijack because maybe that little tiny animation is causing the problem, but that didn't fix it. This appears to be a bug introduced with the combination of the new 16-inch MacBook Pro and the latest version of macOS. I visited the Apple forums where it's been a significant subject of discussion. One person has posted an enormous amount of detail of experiments they've run with multiple 16-inch MacBook Pros, and she, he, is convinced it's a graphics processor problem. That doesn't help me much, but misery does love company. Now, it's weird enough that an audio application app triggers Turbo Boost, but when my system, with my system is so low, but there's another app that causes the exact same problem, and that's my backup software, Carbon Copy Cloner from Bombitch.com. Or is it bombic.com? I think it's bombic.com. This software is definitely doing nothing graphically when it's running in the background. There isn't even a visible window. But I know within a few seconds when my hourly backup is running because I can't hear myself think with the fans cranked to 5,000 RPM. Sometimes if I've been recording with Audio Hijack and Carbon Copy Cloner kicks off at the same time, I am doomed. Now, the dumbest thing I could do at this point would be to treat, treat the symptom with a tool like SMC Fan Control. I have never installed this software because it makes no sense to me. This tool lets you override the fan speed signal coming from macOS. Since the processor is clocking up and the temperature is going up, the worst thing would be to tell the fans not to blow air over it to cool it back down. However, I did find a tool that treats the root cause rather than the symptom. I was listening to the Accidental Tech Podcast, and I heard Marco Arment refer to a tool called Turbo Boost Switcher from tbswitcher.oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, Rugarsiap. Ah, there's a link in the show notes. Anyway, the app is designed to allow you to tell the Mac simply, don't enable Turbo Boost. 
Turbo Boost Switcher is a freemium program, so you can do the basics like disabling and enabling Turbo Boost without paying for it, but you get enhanced capabilities with the Pro version. Turbo Boost Switcher Pro is only 10 bucks, and after using the free version for, I think it was about 10 minutes, I gave the developers their money. You get free updates for life for that 10 bucks, and it's an amazing tool, so why not pay the developer? At its simplest, you get a switch that allows you to turn off Turbo Boost. I disabled Turbo Boost with the app while using Audio Hijack, and the CPU slowed down immediately, which caused the temperature to drop in turn, and the fans went back to their normal happy idle speed of around 2,000 RPM. It was glorious. Now, you might think this would cause problems because obviously the Mac really, truly did need to clock up the processor speed or wouldn't have done it. But in my usage, I have not found that to be the case. Audio Hijack does not need that much power, and I've had no problems with recording with Turbo Boost disabled. And that's pure audio. I'm not using Turbo Boost Switcher while recording the live show because I know that my Mac is actually doing a great deal of work, and the smoothness of my video will depend on it having all of the power it needs. However, it turns out that recording a screencast and editing in ScreenFlow doesn't really require as much performance as you might think. Now, if I'm transcoding video, sure, but while I'm recording a screencast, it's not bad at all. So I can use Turbo Boost Switcher to disable Turbo Boost, and I have the sweet sounds of silence even though I'm using my beloved Audio Hijack. Now that my primary problem is solved, I started poking around into what other features there are in Turbo Boost Switcher Pro. Whether your fans are bothering you too, or whether you want to eke out every minute of battery life on your Mac laptop, I think you might find value in these advanced features. Turbo Boost Switcher allows you to configure some automatic settings that are perfect for saving your battery life. If you switch to auto mode, you'll see three tabs to configure it just the way you want it. If fan noise is what bothers you, you can tell Turbo Boost Switcher to disable Turbo Boost when your fans exceed a chosen RPM rate and to keep it disabled until it goes below another specified rate. For example, you could tell it to disable Turbo Boost if the fans go above 3500 RPM, which is right around when they start to annoy me, and keep it disabled until it behaves itself and gets below 2000 again. If more battery life is your goal, you can have the app automatically disable Turbo Boost entirely when you're not charging the battery. So when you're on battery power, no Turbo Boost is allowed. Or you can set a threshold of battery percentage and time left on battery below which Turbo Boost doesn't get to play. So, you know, you're down to 20%. I don't want any Turbo Boost. I need to get some work done and I don't want my battery dying. Finally, if you've got a few apps that are causing Turbo Boost to kick in unnecessarily, then you can add those to a list which will automatically disable Turbo Boost for those apps. I'm absolutely not throwing Audio Hijack and Carbon Copy Cloner under the bus here, but this bug in macOS Catalina is causing this silly problem, so I might add them to this list until it gets fixed. To add some apps to the list uh, where Turbo Boost would be disabled, you tap the gear and you can scroll through the list of running processes. But this is a really tedious way to do it. The apps aren't and uh, processes aren't alphabetized and the app to be, has to be running in the list in order to be in the list, but instead just use the magnifying glass to search for the apps you want to add. With the auto mode in Turbo Boost Switcher, I was able to have Turbo Boost on by default, disabled when Audio Hijack or Carbon Copy Cloner are running, and disabled if my laptop isn't charging. And Turbo Boost Switcher sends me a notification if I want to know when an app has triggered disabling of Turbo Boost. Isn't that cool? 
Now, if you'd rather control things yourself, and to be honest, I'm a little more on the control freak side, you can still get notifications of high temperature or low battery without being in auto mode, so you don't have to wait for excessive fan noise before you disable Turbo Boost manually. I didn't mention it, but Turbo Boost Switcher runs as a menu bar app, and you can have it display your current CPU load, fan speed, and the temperature of your CPU. I've been using iStat menus for that, but the way they display it takes up a fair bit of room in my menu bar, so I've decided to let Turbo Boost Switcher take over showing me those numbers, since that's where I'm going to take action. Turbo Boost even has a pair of graphs you can view to show you the temperature over time and the fan speed. If you have Turbo Boost enabled, the line is orange in both graphs, and when you disable it, the line turns blue. It's really fun to see high CPU temperatures and high fan speed, then hit Disable Turbo Boost and see the lines drop down. This is truly unnecessary for functionality, but you know, I love me a good graph. Turbo Boost Switcher has gotten sort of stalled from time to time where the menu bar indicator doesn't show the correct temperature and the graphs aren't recording. Not really sure what's caused that, but a quick uh, quit and restart has got that back to working for me. As I was writing this article over the course of a couple of days, I had Audio Hijack running and I noticed my fans weren't kicking off. I thought to myself, oh man, I took too long to write this article because obviously a recent update to macOS Catalina had fixed the problem. And then I glanced at Turbo Boost Switcher and noticed I had disabled Turbo Boost. That is how silently and perfectly this app works for you in the background that you can even forget that it's running. I am super happy with Turbo Boost Switcher and I'll be keeping it on my Mac for sure even after Apple fixes this annoying bug. For 10 bucks, it could make your battery last longer on a long flight, so why not give it a free trial? One of the problems that a lot of people are very aware of is how distracted we are and how often babies accidentally get left in cars. And that's a real serious problem. And American Home Safety Products has, uh, has a solution for this. And I'm speaking to Gina Biggie about uh, their solution for this problem. Yes. So let me tell you about Car Seat Copilot Alert System. It runs on a um, radio frequency technology, which is low tech. You know, it doesn't require Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. It basically is a sensor built into a car seat clip. You add it to your existing car seat. It's not. You don't have to buy a new one. You don't have to buy a new one. It doesn't replace it. And it just teaches you to double click it. So when you have your child in the car seat, if you don't unbuckle that sensor and you walk away more than 10 feet from it, there's an alarm that's triggered on a key fob that comes with two key fobs for each parent or caregiver. And anybody who, from distraction or whatever reason, forgets that their child's in the back seat, then this would get triggered and the alarm would go off and you'd send you back down you know, to your car to... Um, so let me ask a question. Yeah, where is the device on here? The device is built into the car seat clip right here in this. So that replaces the regular it lower half? It oh. doesn't replace it. You so it's, add, like, it's yeah. like the chest brace that goes across, but it's Correct. another one across the waist? Correct. And we have a... We don't have the best representation here for the baby doll. There's a baby doll. You didn't want to shove a real baby no, in. we sent men shopping. This is what they come back with. Sorry. <laughs> hey, hey. So then, yeah, you break the... Uh, it's going to be hard for me to open it up here on the demo. But um, basically, this gets separate. Let me use that one over there, if you don't mind. Okay, you sure. That to me. Um, so basically, the two parts have to lock together and click. And then you... It's now testing. Unless you um, take it apart, 
then um, it will set off an alarm to your keychain. So, so my, my question is going to be, so we've got two key fobs, so uh, mom and second mom or whatever, they've each got one of these. Yep. Uh, if, if one of them is far away already, how's that working? Um, Cause, because it, it synchronizes with both of the key fobs, but it's, it's basically within the 10 feet um, distance. So if another parent has the key fob in their, their vehicle, that's not going to get set off. Okay, so it's just the, it's, it's just one of the key fobs yeah. is nearby and correct. then stops being nearby. That's correct, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. so you can only get 10 feet away correct. and it's going to say, hey, you forgot something. You forgot your most precious cargo in the back seat of the car. Go back and get them. Very interesting. I like that it's low tech because sometimes it's the best children way. a year die from this, so it is a uh, really good solution. It isn't going to cost very much. It's a great gift to give uh, expectant parents and parents of uh, children under the age of three. Right, right, right. So if people want to learn more about the, uh, let's see, it's called the Copilot from right. American Home Safety Products, right. where would they go? They go to copilotalert.com. Copilotalert.com. Very good. And uh, when is this going to be available? It's available now online on our own store, and we're pushing it out to retail this uh, before summer. And what's your price point on the product? Forty-four ninety-nine is suggested retail. Wow, forty-five bucks to save your child. Uh, you know, I think, I think most people it. can make that one happen. Thank you very much for You're your time. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, this is a really important problem to be solved that, they, that uh, this woman has been working on, and I applaud her for that. And I also like the idea of it being kind of a lower-tech solution, and I think there's some merit with that. But this product definitely needed a lot more work on productizing because it was really hard for her to get that on and off. And if you've ever been trying to get a kid into a car seat when you're in a hurry or, the, or trying to get them out when the kid is really tired of being in that car seat... I think that uh, people might stop using it over time if this is not um, made a lot simpler to get on and off. But you know what? CES is all about uh, cool ideas, and uh, maybe this one's not quite ready yet, but it's a great idea to start with. I, for some reason, have never interviewed anybody about a robot vacuum, so I made a point of going to the Neato booth, and I'm talking to Chriselle Loran about the Neato uh, robot vacuum, right? Yes, we're absolutely glad to be your first one. Yay, yay. So she's holding it up here. It looks like, it actually looks more like a bathroom scale, but it doesn't tell me how fat I am. So I like it so far. <laughs> yeah, it actually is one of the greatest um, features of our form factor. So we are the first robot vacuum company to have this D shape. So having these edges and corners to our robot allows you to get as far to the wall as possible. Oh, actually in corners. Yeah. Duh. Exactly. So you have a wider brush a bigger dustbin as a result. It's actually about 30% larger than most of the dustbins you get in a round robot vacuum. Nice, so it's got big, big wheels, like these are clearly for traction, going over carpet even? Exactly, so it can go right from your vinyl or hardwood floor right onto carpet or a rug. This is, this is almost like a, uh, like a tank tractor thing going, and it's got some little nice whiskers on the side here to get all that weird crud out of the corners, I guess? Exactly. So that's actually a backup for us. For most of the round robots, you actually see this in the front of the brush because it needs to get there so they can get the things that are happening in the sides. For us, because we're already getting there, we have this as that backup so that if we did happen to miss something, it still gets it. I gotcha, I gotcha. So what's, what makes this uh, a consumer electronic show device? Is this a smart device or how does it work? What does it, it work is, with? We just announced all of our smart home integrations. So we are able to work with Google, Alexa, and Siri with HomePod through Siri shortcuts. So our oh. smart home integrations are new for us. So talk to me about how, what you would do with a Siri shortcut. Would you say, 
Uh, hey, uh, Nito, uh, go vacuum the kitchen. Yeah, actually, that's exactly it. So one I of the great it. things is that with our Nito D7 robot, it can actually create a floor plan of your home, and then you can mark which rooms are what. So you can say the living room, kitchen, dining room. And with our integrations, you can say something like, hey, Google, clean the kitchen. And then nice. it just goes right out there. I like the name D7 because you're going to remember that this is a D shape, right? Exactly. Oh, man, somebody really smart named this. <laughs> I like it. You should just join our marketing team, I think. There you go. I'm all over it. So uh, when will this be on the market? So this is actually already on the market. Uh, we do have a couple of announcements coming out later on this year that we're happy to share with you. But the D4, D6, and D7 are all available right now on Best Buy, Amazon, on our website. Oh, okay. So what's the difference between D4, D6, and D7? So our D4 is our base model. It essentially allows you to you know, clean your home with our app, allows you to you know, basically tell it to start and stop. With a D6, it actually is much more powerful suction, so it gets the pet hair better. Um, you are actually able to create a floor plan with your home and then also uh, create basically these no-go lines where it says, you know, hey, my pet bulls are here, so don't go in this area. With our D7, it can do multiple floor plans. So if you have two stories to your home, for example, you can have both on one robot. Oh, I like it. I like it. I like that pet hair thing. My solution was I got pets that are the color of my carpet. <laughs> That's a really good solution. I'm you, it's brilliant. You know, I didn't even know my dog shed till she went to somebody else's house. <laughs> you have to do the same with your furniture too. Black dog, black furniture. That's yeah. what I have. Yeah, no, I messed up on that. I got a white cat with a dark furniture. It's not <laughs> It's not working. I'm going to shave the cat, I think. I, I don't know. All right, this is very cool. So, uh, the D7, for example, what, what's your price point on that on Amazon? So $7.99, um, and basically um, Amazon, Best Buy are all price matching right now. So if we have a deal on one, you'll find it on the other as well. Very good. Thank you very much, Chriselle. This is fantastic. Now she said that was her first interview. I think she was lying. I thought she did great, and that looked like a pretty cool product to me. Well, I'd like to read you a letter I received from Andrew Darlow. Here's what he wrote. Hi, Allison. I'm a huge fan of the NoSillaCast podcast, and I have to commend you and Steve for your fantastic coverage of CES 2020. I'm going to give Steve all the credit for that. Anyway, he went on to say, I would have never found out about many of the companies you covered who are doing amazing things and creating groundbreaking products. I look forward to going back into the archive to learn much more. On with two quick items I found in which I thought you and your audience would be interested. With tax season upon us, I learned that you can download an order history report in CSV format from Amazon.com, which I know will help me as I sort through my business expenses. He gave me a link to find that download. I thought that was really, really cool. And while he's at it, he gave us a link to a list of which Macs have the T2 chip in them. I thought that was really nifty because if you have that T2 chip, there's a lot more you need to know about your Mac. So it's really cool to get that link. He said all the best, and thanks again for all that you, Steve, and the Castaways do. Well, I gotta say, I love that he loves the show, and I love even more that he recognizes the contribution Steve gives to the show. I wrote back and I suggested both of these links would be great to post in our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, and he immediately joined the conversation there. But then guess what else he did? He became a very generous patron of the show. He went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and he chose a pledge amount that was right for him. So not only did he say lovely things to make my day and to make Steve's day, and not only did he join the community so everyone gets to enjoy his contributions, but he supported the show financially. Sorry, but move over, Troy. I think Andrew is our hero of the week.
Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchatz. How are you doing on this lovely February 23rd, 2020, Bart? I am doing just fine. Um, it is, yeah, no, I, I got to go out on the bike today and it I didn't get rained on. Nice. And I didn't get, like, a gale a in my face. Didn't get hit, didn't by, get hit a by a car either. That, that was also good. Um, actually, no, yesterday was a big day. Um, yesterday was the first time the wind was pointing in the same direction as the day of the accident. Therefore, I was on the same road and I passed the same spot. Ugh. It was a bit weird, but hey, done that now. So that's another thing ticked off on the recovery list. Yeah, psychologically to get past it, right? Yeah, physically, literally. <laughs> I suggest that you will probably always feel that little bit of apprehension every time you go by that same spot forever. I am very nervous at junctions, all of them still. Yeah, if I which is probably a healthy I'm, thing for everybody. Possibly, but yeah. Possibly. Still want to enjoy Not yourself, like, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I need to keep it at the same level of, uh, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, let's uh, let's kick into some security stuff. Okie dokie. First off, our feedback and follow up section. So basically long ongoing stories or things we talked about recently. Uh, so the first thing is from the second of those categories. We talked last time about Avast getting in trouble for or getting embarrassed by the fact that they were selling your browsing data. Um and they had promised they would kill off their subsidiary, for, which they created for the purpose of selling that data. That was called JumpSoft, and they have indeed gone ahead and followed through on that promise. Uh, but the government of, Czech, of the Czech Republic, which is the country in which Avast is headquartered, have launched an investigation into oh. the company over all of this. Yeah. Oh, nice. You don't hear much from the Czech Republic. That is very true. I had to. I, I didn't recognize their flag when I went to look for the emoji <laughs> to reply. I had to use the text search to find it. Very disappointing. It looks a bit like the Texas flag, I think. Oh, yeah, except for without the lone star. Yeah, no star. Yeah. Um, also, a long-running story is the Equifax hack. Um, the United States government has formally indicted four, Chinese mili- four members of the Chinese military uh, for the hack. Really? That is... Yeah, that is, of course, a token indictment because I do not believe for one moment the Chinese government is going to extradite them to the United States. Probably not. Equifax has no blame, of course, but uh, it's the Chinese military to blame. Well, I mean, the fact that Equifax was easy to hack is a different question to the fact that it was hacked, right? If you you break into a poorly secured house, you're still a burglar. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give it to you. Yeah. Uh, we also talked last time about Clearview AI, um, and last time I think it was, we were talking about people investigating whether or not they would sue. Well, shock and or horror, there be court cases. <laughs> I forget, um, what did they do? Clearview AI is a company who scraped all of the public profiles from social media to build a searchable database to allow you to map photographs to real oh, world human beings. Right, 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 right. It's all sitting uh, right so, there. Yeah, so basically there's a law in Illinois that has very strict rules on biometrics and AI and stuff, and therefore there's now a class action lawsuit under that new Illinois law. And that Illinois law is the same law that we talked about last time, costing Facebook half a billion dollars in fines. So hmm. of all the places to pick for the class action, <laughs> that seems like someone paid a good lawyer. Yeah, they did their research on where to go do it. Maybe we need an Illinois flag to say good on them along with the Czech Republic. 
Do you know there are no emoji for the state flags? Yeah, that makes sense. Because think how many there'd have to be. Unless you yeah, just do it for every country. Yeah. Nope. Just the U.S. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't fly in the um, yeah. everywhere. What is it? <laughs> I was going to say that it's the, the the something the something consortium who look after that. What are their names again? Ah, I know this. Names and numbers of those is. people. No, the, the the emoji are managed oh, by the, the uh, yeah. UTF. No, we should know this anyway. Anyway, yeah, it's a big international committee. Do that. Um, another twist in the long, long saga of the uh, question of net neutrality in the United States of America. Um, you may remember there was a public period for comment that went horrifically wrong with the website going down and all the comments being spammed by robots. And it was generally a great big mess to the point that Stephen Colbert mercilessly mocked it. Well, there was a court case basically saying, no, 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 that dumpster fire was not public consultation. That was a dumpster fire. You haven't actually fulfilled your requirement to have proper public consultation. Oh, and wow. A court has agreed. So basically the FCC get to have a do-over on that. And they, they have do they to have to listen to what we say or they just have to ask us? Uh, they <laughs> have to pretend to listen. Okay. Seriously consider it and then go ahead and do their own thing. But they do have to ask. Um, in a related note, I was just one of those wonderful coincidences today in my audio feed. This just came up. Uh, Freakonomics Radio had an unusual episode for them because it wasn't all that focused on economics. It was an interview with Ajit Pai, who is, of course, the chair of not the char. There's a typo to fix. Apparently, he's charring the FCC, okay. uh, chairing the FCC, uh, which is the Federal Communications Commission, and it's actually. An extremely good interview, which is extremely fair. Um, hmm? I found Without myself Pi involved. Yeah, I was like, "Well, I disagree with you on opinion, but you're actually not an idiot. You just have different goals to me." I and remember the good old actually, days when people were just had different opinions, not and weren't idiots. Yeah, that's really what it reminded me of. I was like, "Oh wow, th this is a really pleasant change," and also. I was able to find many points of agreement, like his war on robocallers. I'm thinking, yep, oh, wow. two thumbs up on that one. Yeah. Okay. So I was really pleasantly surprised, uh, genuinely pleasantly surprised. So link in show notes if people want to listen along. The perennial how should we regulate the internet question, of course, rumbled on. Um, Facebook through a white paper, an op-ed, and a um, question-and-answer session at a big security conference in Germany, Facebook has let it be known that they definitely want to be regulated. They don't think they're quite like a telco, so they don't want to be regulated like a common carrier, but they also don't want to be edited, regulated like journalism, so they'd like to be regulated like something somewhere between a newspaper and an ISP. So that's clear as mud. But that's what they'd like. Okay. Meanwhile, there is, this is one of those years in the US where people get through that votey thing. And maybe if you're a listener to this podcast, one of the things you should consider is the different approaches different politicians have to the question of regulation. So two senators have proposed two bills in the United States Senate. Now, 
neither of these bills are probably going anywhere, right? But nonetheless, it's interesting to see the difference of approach, and one of them you may agree with more than the other, so bear it in mind. So on the one hand, we have a bill from Senator Gillibrand calling for a dedicated US data protection agency to protect Mm. people's data. And on the other hand, we have a bill from Lindsey Graham asking for a backdoor on encryption. And not asking for, <laughs> if the bill goes through, mandating a backdoor on encryption. Like I say, none of these bills have a snowball's chance in hell. But nonetheless, when it comes to choosing who you support, they have very, very different opinions on something that may be very important to you. Therefore, yeah. democracy. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Your vote counts. Precisely. Uh, Google continued to fight back against malicious apps and browser plugins. So they pulled 500 malicious Chrome extensions and 600 malicious apps from the Google Play Store. Do these things like just grow out of spores on their own? Because you never see Google pulls seven, you know, it's it's always hundreds. I mean, and and they, this must be an exhausting job to keep track of. I mean, where the right. Okay, so because of how unhuman involved Google's processes are, that saves Google a lot of human beings, but it means that a lot of it is scriptable on the other end too. Yeah, okay. So that means that you tend to have this kind of, uh, you know, basically when the bad guys find a way to do something, they automate doing it. And when Google find out about it, they automate removing it. And what you end up with is these really big numbers. Yeah, yeah, they're they're scripting on both sides. Yeah, they're both automating their, you know, one of them's automating their cat and the other one's automating their mouse. (laughs) Finally then, uh, because I like to end on good news when I can, Fido continues to expand and grow. So OpenSSH has, uh, the OpenSSH project has joined the queue here, making it possible to use Fido U2F tokens, like your YubiKeys, to SSH to things, which is rather cool. But bury the lead somewhat here. A rather large corporation making many, many, many computing devices has joined the Fido Alliance. I am talking of Apple Inc. We like so, that, right? That's superb news. There's already good. There's already Fido support in iOS 13, and the fact that they've now joined the alliance means we can look forward to ever better support. So I am hoping we get to the point where you can use. Fido protocols to have Face ID connected straight into website auth. Like, not through a password manager, as in directly your face cryptographically unlocks a website without any sort of need for a password manager or anything like that. Your face is actually doing the authentication instead of your face authenticating a password manager, and the password being what gets stored and can therefore be compromised. You know, it would be said for the LastPass people and for the AgileBits people uh, and the community would feel a loss if they weren't necessary. But that really is the end goal, is to not have to do that. I don't, Okay, they're never going to be not necessary, though, because we're always going to have social security numbers we want to keep. We're always going to have all sorts of bits and pieces of information we want to keep, but keep secure. Like my 1Password, maybe it shouldn't be named 1Password. Maybe it should be named, you know, 1Wallet or something. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. like mine has an awful, awful lot in there beyond passwords. And even if you do have uh, Fido, what you will have basically is you're still going to have a password. You're just only going to use it when you need to add a new device or authorize a new token or whatever. So it's still mm-hmm. going to be in the mix. It's just not going to be in the day-to-day mix. Therefore, it's not going to be flying over and back across the internet. 
I have this vision of the phone calls from Steve's dad. Um, right now, a website will change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that means a phone call for Steve because uh, now 1Password isn't doing it right because now they've decided that let me put the username on one page and the, and the password on a, oh. on a second page. And that's going to piss everything off. So that confuses him. So Steve's got to teach him how to use the new one. Now, just picture it's looking at his face and they do it wrong, right? They say, okay, well, we're going to scan your nose on the first page and your ears on the second page. Turn left. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Perfect. Turn left. Now turn right. We need a profile shot. Oh. We shall see. Uh, on the whole, though, this is, this is an extremely positive development. Yeah. And to some extent, the biggest question is what took so long, because Apple have actually been doing Fido, just not joining the alliance. So now, now they get to have input into its development as well as just implementing it. So good. Definitely good. Okay, moving on to deep dives. We have two deep dives. The first one is Swaintooth. Swaintooth. This is... Yeah, so this is a collection of Bluetooth bugs that are related to each other, and they are named for the son of Danish King Harald Bluetooth, after whom the protocol is named. So Swain was Bluetooth's son, hence Swaintooth being a funny name for Bluetooth bugs. If you're wondering what the Bluetooth icon is, by the way, it's the rune that Bluetooth used to identify himself when he was king. What is a rune? It is a it, the runic alphabet is an old alphabet that predates the Latin alphabet in the Norse cultures. Oh wow! So that really complicated Bluetooth symbol was was the rune for his name. Well, it was. I think it was the rune for B, but he used it as his the B with the three card. dots through it. Oh, is it not always got three dots? That's just mine has three dots through it right now. Yeah, it's it's a B with a funny little sticky outy bits yeah. sort of. Oh, okay, well that's cool. Yeah. It is very cool. So a little bit Fun of fact to no one tell. Um, exactly, and a well, good name for a collection of bugs. So these bugs exist in the firmware of countless many Bluetooth devices, and how bad it is is extremely variable from the device from device to device. So most of the bugs are in the form of basically making it possible to do a denial of service, causing the device to either lock up to the point where it just stops working. Where you have to, you know, force quit it or press and hold the power button to force it off or start it up again and then it'll cop onto itself. To forced reboots, where anytime someone malicious comes into Bluetooth range, they can make your Bluetooth device restart itself, which could be really quite annoying. Unfortunately, though, the other end of the spectrum is also reached in about 10% of the bugs, which is... A full security bypass where a bad guy can silently add themselves into the pairing and take full control of the device, being able to send any commands and listen in on all traffic and access all data on the device. So that's a bad thing, but you're saying that is dependent on the device, whether it has that bug or... Yes. Okay. So the reason I'm being so vague, I'm now about to explain, because this, this is, these bugs defy easy categorization, because the answer to almost every question is, it depends. One of those. So at the root of the problem is that lots of software development kits or SDKs provided by at least seven different manufacturers of Bluetooth system on a chip or SOCs have a bug. So to understand how this works, imagine you want to build a Bluetooth headset. The first thing you would do is you would find yourself a source of a Bluetooth system on a chip that you're going to use as the the basis around which you build your specific Bluetooth device. 
So you would go to a manufacturer, find a Bluetooth SoC you like, and then they will give you an SDK that you will use to write your firmware for your device. You will then use that SS, that SDK to compile your firmware and then put it on your devices, and then you build all the rest around the little system on a chipboard, and hey, presto, you have a device. The bug is in those SDKs, which means that bug is... The bugs are in at least seven different SDKs from at least seven different vendors, and those are then compiled into the firmwares of uncountably many Bluetooth devices. So how many SOC vendors are there? Are there thousands of them, or are there only 10 and 7 of 10 have done have this bug? In their I SDK? don't have an exact answer, but as I understand it, this affects the most popular manufacturers okay. making the most chips for the most devices. So it might not even be the number of them, it's the big ones, huh? So they shared the, the S, their SDK development, apparently? If well, they have the same that's bug? not clear. It would... Th- th- it seems that they all made similar mistakes. So whether that's because the spec is poorly written and they all made this, they all made the same miscomprehension, or because there's some sort of sample implementation somewhere that they all copied and pasted. That's happened before, where Intel have done a sample driver with like comments saying, "Don't do this for real. This isn't secure. It just shows the concept." Mm-hmm. And people have copied and pasted and ended up putting in real firmware where it should never have gone. That kind of stuff has happened before. Okay. So I don't know exactly how it ended up. Variants of this ended up in seven different SDKs at least. Um, And the reason I'm saying at least all the time is because they're practicing responsible disclosure. So they're saying that there are more things they haven't told us yet because they're waiting on updates to come out. Wait, who's they? The security researchers who found the bug. Okay. And so So they've actually been working on the chip companies to change the SDKs. Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. And they've been doing that since last summer. Oh, wow. They just haven't told us. So if the system on the chip vendors find out from the security researchers that they've got this bug in their SDK and they fix the SDK, that doesn't fix all the devices that were written on that SDK, does it? No, it doesn't. So imagine we're back to we made our Bluetooth headphones. So we now get an update from our SOC vendor telling us here's a new SDK and it fixes the security bug. We then have to recompile our firmware and then we have to push that firmware out to our users. Now, if we're making an advanced device, like a modern pair of AirPods or something, that's going to work entirely automatically and the users are just going to get the update, right? You don't have to proactively do anything for your AirPods to get their update. If we're talking about the SOC for a high-end smartphone, be it a modern Android that's under security maintenance or be it an iPhone or whatever... Those come as security updates, so we do have to do a tiny little bit. We have to say, okay, and then our phone will time. Exactly. So they'll be fine too. And then there's all the other Bluetooth devices that even if even if they made a software update, there's no mechanism to tell us. Like, I have no idea if there's a firmware update for the $10 Bluetooth speaker I bought on special in a supermarket two years ago that I still use. Not a clue. Right, right. How would you know? I might be. Yeah. Probably isn't, but there might be. Mm-hmm. So the end result is that lots and lots of devices, particularly cheaper devices, are never going to get an update because no one cares about them. But even if they do, there's going to be lots and lots and lots more devices where there's a theoretical update, but no one's actually going to ever notice there's an update because there's no mechanism to get it out to them, so it's never going to get patched in the real world. So in reality, from this day forward, there are going to be Hundreds of millions of Bluetooth devices with known security problems all over planet Earth. 
So if those that, devices are Bluetooth speakers or uh, maybe some low-end Bluetooth headphones that you don't know what's happening with them or a, a mm-hmm. trackpad, you can't really do too much damage to somebody, can you? Right, exactly. So the, the, there's a few silver linings here. So the first silver lining is that all of this requires the attacker to be within Bluetooth range. And Bluetooth is designed to be a short-range protocol. It uses uh, short-range maths for, for the way it does its um, signal processing. Yeah, so it's not the kind of thing where someone in China can attack you while you're sitting in California or Dublin or whatever. So that at least limits the damage. It's also the case that the cheaper the device is, the less of value it contains, right? Your iPhone is not a cheap device and it's going to get updates and it contains lots of stuff you really don't want getting out. Mm-hmm. That Bluetooth speaker I mentioned is going to get to listen to Freakonomics Radio. <laughs> hey, great episode. <laughs> right. Right, right. So basically, it, it, there's sort of a nice selection bias going on here where the devices most likely to be most insecure are also least likely to be of, of any sort of significant value. Okay, so we... Thank goodness. So do we get a small fire extinguisher on this what we no we don't because what you now need to do going forward is you need to know that if it has a bluetooth chip and it's not a high-end product from a vendor you know is keeping it up to date you should assume it's vulnerable and you should behave appropriately so you it's not that you should have a fire extinguisher you now need to be aware that every time you see bluetooth think to yourself public broadcasting and then think, okay. okay, so the default is I must assume this is insecure unless it's a device from a company I trust and then I can switch my assumption and ask yourself what's going across this. Hmm. So I'm really happy that all of my health devices are from Withings who proactively push firmware updates to my devices automatically because my health devices I actually do want to be secure. Yeah, I just with, wish Withings was better, uh, did a better job with networking. It took Steve and I almost as long as any other device in our house to get our Withings scale onto the Eero network. And I, I called Pat Dangler, oh. who always has, you know, she's always skipping around doing things like wirelessly scanning, like lunatic. Nobody can do that. And she went, oh, no. I can't get Withings. a scanner to work with a wire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The um, Her answer was, yeah. That Withing scale was a real bear to get onto the network when when she switched to Eero as well. So I wish they were better at that. Huh. So we didn't, we, ours was not updated, wasn't actually talking to our phones for about three weeks before we noticed. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, interesting. But, but yeah, that's a company who can and will push firmware updates. Um, yeah. so it's awareness basically is what I'm saying. Don't panic. Don't set your hair on fire. Understand that there is now an inherent risk to Bluetooth and that you can't assume, oh, it's Bluetooth, it's secure because it's paired. No, there's a good chance that pairing could be bypassed now. I'm wondering, though, Bart, are there maybe a lot of devices that even somebody as nerdy as me don't realize are using Bluetooth? Like, maybe my Wisecams are using Bluetooth. I don't know. That's an interesting, that, that may be the other shoe that's about to drop here. I mean, I think they're on that Wi-Fi, is, but they also, they've got a little hub thing. And then that little hub thing talks to the, the little uh, devices on my, uh, uh, the little sensor that tells me that my mailbox is open. That's probably, right, that's, that's not f- using Wi-Fi. Might be probably Zigbee. Zigbee. Right, but I don't know, right? The other thing is, don't WISE proactively push firmware updates? Yes. Yes. 
So I, they I, fall into the category of company you trust. Right. I'm just kind of trying to use an example yeah, of something I know, that I, I don't know. really know how it's communicating. It's magic. I plug this little right. little USB dongle into one of my cameras, and all of a sudden, I know when my mailbox opens. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. yeah. It, it is just there may be another shoe to drop here, right? But this is what we know so far, and so basically, we now need to mentally know that going forward for the next decade, we need to be suspicious of Bluetooth because these old SOCs are not going to go away, and they're going to continue to be on the stuff you buy on on Amazon for two dollars or whatever, like that. That they're just going to continue to have, you know, dodgy SOCs because someone made a cabillion of them for dirt cheap. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I've got a good one. And I bet 98 people are yelling into their devices right now that we haven't thought about this one. Cars use Bluetooth and cars don't get updates very often. I mean, my and cars are a dumpster fire and everything mm-hmm. to do with technology. Yeah, right, right, right. One. I mean, I, I had an Acura TL that had maps from 2012 on it because that's when the car was built. Never got an update. I I looked into it and it was $300 to get a new DVD to put in my trunk, right? Oh, jeez. Now, my new car gets updates every couple of days, uh, but that's not normal at all. So all those Bluetooth, and so you're on the highway, somebody's driving along, listening in maybe to your conversation. Maybe, or depending on, I mean... Because of the way the CAN bus works, if someone takes over your Bluetooth SOC, for all you know, they can take over your sudden car because car security is such a dumpster fire. That's not even go there. That's one to ask Charlie Miller next time. Next time he gets onto sixty minutes and <laughs> you know locks on the brakes on a on a mini from five thousand miles away or something equally dramatic like he did. All right. Well, sorry. Yeah. Sorry okay. To bring that's, the nightmare that's cheered home, me up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to deep dive number two. This one, this one's I, this one actually, I probably should have put a fire extinguisher on. So apparently, according to malware bytes, there's more malware on Macs than Windows these days. <gasps> really? Clutches pearls. Yeah, I, let's let's just cut to the chase. No, 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 no. So what we have here is an AV vendor who's trying to sell Mac AV and who would really love some free publicity. And they managed to find some numbers which, if you squint at them really badly, will make you get the headline you want. (laughs) If you make the assumption that all malware is equal, something that you choose to install because you don't want to pay Adobe for a license ends up putting some pop-up ads in your computer is the same as ransomware that encrypts all of your files and charges you a million dollars. If you make that assumption, then if you count things and you ignore the fact that the Mac would have inbuilt protections to stop them running anyway, then you can get to the point where there are more problems on a Mac than on Windows. But no, that's not how it actually works, right? The fact that there's, you know, a danger of Trojans, which the Mac would stop anyway with its default settings, is not the same as there's viruses that self-propagate and worms that self-propagate and ransomware and... It's it's just a meaningless press release designed to get clicks and it worked and it makes me cranky. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised because Malwarebytes had kind of cleaned up its reputation and was becoming something you could kind of recommend that, I mean, if somebody did get some pop-ups, maybe you ought to just slap it on there and see if it finds anything. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think this means that they're not reputable, but it means that their PR department was let off on too long of a leash. Maybe, yeah. That's a shame, um, because it, it is a reasonably good product. 
I will take your word for it. I have very little experience. So yeah, just for I, I won't, checking I won't your Mac, it's, it's not a bad idea to drop it on there and look at it. And for free, you can find out if there's anything wrong. Okay. Because there, um, there is what browser I will hijacking, say, right? I mean, that's happened. Yeah. So what I will say is that this news in no way changes my calculus. So you have to bear in mind that an antivirus is an app that runs with very high privilege and it runs complicated code. That's a dangerous mix because complicated code is very likely to have bugs and running at a high privilege means if there is a bug, it can do serious damage. So the question is, is the real world danger of the attack surface that you add to your computer by running antivirus more or less dangerous than the threats it will be protecting you against? Today, it is my judgment that it is not worth the trade-off. That could change tomorrow, but today my judgment remains the same. It's not worth it on a Mac. So um, you are going to be talking about something that I I don't want to steal your thunder. I know you hate it when I read Mm -hmm. ahead, Um, but you're going to be talking about Bitdefender coming or Defender, whatever it is, the Microsoft Defender coming to the Mac. I am, but I'm not going to be saying this is a great thing for end users. I'm going to be okay, saying this but is for corporate it, in IT. In this context, and it would be interesting. Do you mind skipping to that one to say, in the context? No, let's do it. Let's said? do it. Okay. Yeah, perfect. So what what is coming to... Well, okay, so first off, so Microsoft gave a non-announcement announcement. Basically, there's a big security conference on in the week that's about to happen as we record this, and Microsoft are giving a presentation where they're actually going to tell us actual information. So right now, this is, again, the publicity machine rather than any actual information. So the reason that you don't know any details about this hypothetical new uh, advanced threat protection defender for iOS is because there are none. So that's the first thing. Now, ATP, or advanced threat protection, is a Microsoft product that is extremely high-end for not, not IT, but for organizations big enough to have a dedicated security team hmm. or a dedicated security and compliance team. It's above the level of sysadmins up into the level of security professional. It's an amazing product for giving you massive... Like, so if you have... 2,000 users and you're trying to figure out what threats are are affecting them and what policies and what you're doing to prevent them leaking information, what you're doing to make sure that they never leak out social security numbers. It's really, really high-end, fancy corporate stuff. That's what ATP is, advanced threat protection. I thought this was just the stuff that runs on Windows that you get with Windows. No, this is ATP Defender, not Defender. Oh, totally. I'm really glad I asked that. I completely misunderstood the, the headline. Yeah, and everyone did because everyone just saw the word Defender. I went, oh, great, free antivirus for iOS. No, this is, the, the, this is not for you. This is a really big deal for corporate IT. And in fact, you need to buy access to ATP. It, like it's, it's, it's a subscription you pay for. It is not something a mom and pop store would do. It is not something that small organizations do. And it's absolutely not something home users do because they'd get no value from it. Okay. You wouldn't even make, you wouldn't be able to make it do anything. Okay. So, so we probably don't need to cover it, especially since we don't know what it is yet. What's right. So basically my coverage of it is basically hold your horses. We actually genuinely don't even know what this is. This is very, and even that what we do know is it's very unlikely to be of interest to our listeners. Okay. So, all right. That's it. Story done. Thanks. Excellent. 
Okay, so action alerts. This is the bit where everyone should pay attention. This month's Patch Tuesday has seen updates from Microsoft and Adobe, including a fix for a zero day being actively exploited in IE. And just because the bug is in IE doesn't mean that IE is the only way to trigger the bug. There are reports that you can trigger it by opening certain types of files and stuff. So basically, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Would that be because the the guts of IE are actually part of how you browse the the uh, the device? That's precisely it, IE is just a window into deeper underlying. Yeah legacy code that's still buried deep in the OS. Yeah. Um, Adobe also partook in Patch Tuesday, but then they followed it a week later with an out-of-band patch to fix critical flaws in media, encoder, and after effects. And if they're worthy of getting an out-of-band patch, you can rest assured they're serious. So if you are one of those fancy pants pros using media, encoder, or after effects, you should update yourself too. Dell have patched a critical bug in their support app Hmm. or crapware (laughs) uh, that they ship with most of their Windows computers. So if you have a Dell and you haven't removed all the Dell glop, make sure you update said Dell glop or it could really bite you in the backside. No, no commentary at all embedded in that. No commentary whatsoever. No, I have no opinions. A heads up to our fellow WordPress users. There are two plugins that have made a lot of news because they're very popular and have a really nasty bug. Mm. So the first of them is a very popular plugin called GDR Cookie Consent Plugin. GDPR. Which I guess... What did I say? GDR. Oh, no, the German Deutsche Republik or whatever that stands for, they're they're not interested. (laughs) So this is a a cookie or a a plugin that lets you... uh, put up the pop-up saying, do you consent for GDPR reasons? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And because of its name, it's really popular because when you search for GDPR cookie consent, you basically get here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good SEO there. So this thing is used lots and lots of places and has an extremely nasty bug in it that will let people take over your site. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And there's also something called Demo Importer, which is from a big manufacturer of themes called Theme Grill that is also apparently really popular, but I don't understand why. But apparently it's installed in lots of active installs, therefore we should mention it. Alrighty. Okay, now, Worthy Warnings is next. So these are potentially relevant warnings, but it's basically a case of if this applies to you, go read more. So... There's an interesting story on Vice that certainly had a very catchy headline. Google is letting people find invites to some private WhatsApp groups. And that sort of implies the problem is with Google or maybe with WhatsApp. That's not really appropriate to say it that way. So if you make an invite for a WhatsApp group, you get a URL that you share with people. If you put that URL on a public Twitter post or on a public Facebook page or on a public anything, it will get indexed by search engines because that's how the internet works. That's not a bug, that's a feature. And someone went, I wonder how many of these private WhatsApp group invites have been indexed by Google because people have foolishly posted them somewhere public. The answer is half a million. Oh, wow. Why would you, and why would you post a I know. private group chat invite? I mean, I don't know. People do dumb things. People take pictures of their credit cards and tweet them. Yeah. So basically, the take home here is if you want your private 
WhatsApp group to be private, make sure none of the Don't people you invite are the... Precisely. Precisely. So this isn't a case that anyone's doing anything wrong here apart from, you know, operator error, right? If you make a private thing public, it's not private anymore. It's public. You just made it public. So don't do that. That that really makes me wonder how that's happening, though, Mark, because that doesn't seem like something a normal person would easily be able to do because a normal person doesn't have a website of their own. Yeah, but you put it on Facebook or whatever, right? Social media is everywhere. Twitter's been indexed all the time, right? If you search for something, yeah. you get back tweets and people tweet things out. I guess. People Instagram things. People. <laughs> You're right that people don't own their own websites, but people post a lot of stuff on the public internet. Yeah. Notable data breaches. If these apply to you, check them out. I won't dig into too much detail. Uh, private photos leaked by an app called Photo Squared because they didn't bother properly securing the cloud storage where they put all the photos people uploaded with the app. Uh, MG, MGM Hotels uh, sort of kind of failed to properly secure their data, so they ended up publishing data on 10.6 million guests. The good news is there was no financial data. The bad news is it was full of, like, names, phone numbers, and the kind of information you could use to make a very believable phishing attack. So, swings and roundabouts, I guess. And finally, a little PSA from Tidbits that's just a good thing to remind people. Double check that you have your medical ID emergency contacts set up on your iPhone instructions linked in show notes. This is... Your iPhone has the ability to, without unlocking your phone, allow emergency responders to see a your any information that you think first responders would need to know. So in my case, that would be the fact that I'm allergic to a whole class of antibiotics called quinolones. Mm. And I want someone who finds me knocked over by a car to be able to know that. Blood type? Um, yeah, blood type. Yes, blood type. Actually, I have an extremely annoyingly rare blood type. I was very disappointed when I when I dug into it. It's like, oh, AB plus, that sounds nice. Oh, almost no one's AB plus. Great. Anyway, that's the hero there. Um, and also, very importantly, next of kin contact information stuff. And yeah. this is accessible without unlocking your device. So it's a mechanism for you to have important... It's basically an emergency bracelet that's always with you. So yeah, I think it's it important right that Why we should all have it? that. Yeah, Precisely. So take a moment, set it up, instructions from Tidbits, maybe bookmark it, keep a copy for future reference and share with friends and family. Notable news. Two major IoT vendors have gotten on the enforced two-factor authentication train, and this is going to make a whole bunch of story types go away. So all those scare stories about people's Nest cameras or people's Ring doorbells suddenly spying on their two-year-olds, all that's going to go away because those hacks were caused by people having really terrible passwords on their Google accounts and stuff. So now both Ring and uh, Nest have said, you need 2FA or you're about to need 2FA for setting up these cameras. And that's just good. Help people to do the right thing and protect themselves because these devices have a lot of access into their lives. You want to know why I hate this? Uh Oh, I hate that none of these companies take into account the entire concept of there being two family members who are both nerds. So our ring that's connected to my account. Steve can't get the two-factor authentication because they did it over SMS to my phone number. 
Oh, which means, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting there tootling along and Steve saw this story and he goes, oh man, did you just get a notification with a code, Allison? So they don't have the ability to have one doorbell access by two well, I've people? I've got a bank account that won't let me do that. That if we have two-factor authentication on, Steve can't get into it. Unless oh. I'm sitting there with my phone, in which case I might as well do it. I'm happy to say that my bank has a much more clever approach. On a joint account, that account is available through the personal login of all members of that joint account. Yeah, I do have a bank that does it that way too, which is, but uh, I've got one where it doesn't, and it's like, killing me. I mean, maybe if I just did what my husband said, I'd be fine. That is an interesting side effect of two-factor auth. Account sharing goes away. So people who've built their model around account sharing are suddenly having a very unintended consequence. Well, or if you use an authenticator, we can share an account. That's fine. Right? Also true, because a private key can be put into yes. can be shared over one password or yeah. put into multiple authenticator apps if you're using Authy or whatever. Absolutely, you're right. Yeah. Yes. So it's just don't SMS it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's that's good advice anyway, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next major group of stories that just caught my eye that all of these stories came out in the last two weeks and they're all very much related and they basically boil down to this whole idea of our nation states attacking each other. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. FBI director warns of sustained Russian disinformation threat. Officials raise alarm about Chinese hacking. US Cyber Command, DHS and FBI expose new North Korean malware. US and UK call out Russian hackers for Georgia attacks. That will be Georgia the country that was hit by crippling cyber attacks, not Georgia the state. And also a story that sort of made me chuckle a bit. So... The big headline grabber was German US spies owned encryption company used by allies and adversaries. Basically, a giant big Swiss based encryption company selling hardware tools for use for encryption for decades during the Cold War was actually owned by the German spy agency and the CIA. We now know. And this just made me chuckle. I understand why the US government is so certain Huawei must be full of backdoors. Because they've been doing it for decades, and of course their adversaries are doing it too, or of course they're assuming their adversaries are as smart as they are. So I get it now. I understand why you you think everyone's doing it, because you're doing it. Didn't you assume they were doing it? I didn't take a firm stance. I basically would not have been surprised if they were, but I wasn't assuming they were. Well, we know that that we cracked the uh, Enigma machine and then didn't tell... The, the Germans during World War II, right? So there's there's an example sure. of where we had cracked into their encryption that, and and been intercepting their stuff, and we knew it. So we've been doing it. But that's very different. Part. But that's very different to injecting an intentional spying device and selling it to someone. Right? This is up there with Xerox injecting spying tools into the photocopiers they installed in the Russian embassy, which they did, by the way. Um, so I guess if they were doing it in the Xerox as well, so where did they inject? Where did the U.S. government so they, inject? So the U.S. government owned the manufacturing of encryption hardware that was being sold from Switzerland, which is a neutral country, therefore being sold to adversaries of the U.S. 
I guess I'm just getting so, into focus what what exactly this story was about because I did not catch that. So you're saying that the so the U.S. was owned the owned the manufacturing of this encryption secretly. device, so they knew what that that meant they could see anything that was encrypted with it. Yes. Oh, okay. So they a Swiss front company owned by the U.S. and German spy agencies selling supposedly neutral from a neutral country encryption equipment to adversaries of the U.S. Only it was booby trapped. Interesting that it's U.S. and German, though, isn't it? Well, not in a Cold War concept, right? Because in the Cold War times, I mean, where are some so of the biggest U.S. bases around the world? Correct. This oh, is okay. World. This is Cold War era. Got you, got you. Okay, I'd, I'd skip back a, a, an era. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so hard to keep track. <laughs> but yeah, so the, I thought, I mean, it's a fascinating view of history, but I guess it, it makes me understand the concern about Huawei, because... The modern equivalent of doing that is to have backdoors on the 5G equipment you're selling to your adversaries. Mm-hmm. That is the modern equivalent. So I can see why the assumption is they're probably doing it to us because we know we've been doing it for decades. Right. Uh, the FBI have released their 2019 annual cybercrime report. Um, if you're curious, if you live in the US, you can now know there were about 1,300 cybercrimes per day in 2019, with a total cost to victims of about 3.5 billion with a B US dollars. And I am sad to say that the age group to suffer most was the over 60s, who were mm. defrauded to the tune of $835,000. So that, that's a bit sad. Mm. Um the full report is available, linked in show notes. It basically gives you an idea of what cyber criminals are focusing on, what's actually succeeding in attacking Americans, which is probably good to be forearmed, I guess. You know, one of the things that makes me sad about humans is that a natural human reaction, if you're young, and I'm not saying young people are to blame, I'm saying people who are young are to blame, mm-hmm. uh, is is to think, well, you know, those old people, they're idiots, you know, they don't know anything, so I'm going to be fine. Except by the time you become an old person, it's all changed and you don't know how to protect yourself either. So it's a, right, you know... It, the, the, I, I see these Facebook posts of young people going, yeah, we just need all our senators to die so we can have the young ones in and everything will be great. And go, Oh, everything will be changed by the time they get there. <laughs> I was going to say, by the time you're at the age where you could realistically be elected a senator, you'll be just as clueless and out of touch. Exactly. So you just need to have aides who aren't clueless. Yep. You need to help them learn, not shout at them. Right, right. Um... Finally, to end on a happy note-ish, don't feel too bad when you inevitably make a security boo-boo. Because you will. We all do. All of us. Everyone does security boo-boos. As evidenced by the fact that Facebook and Twitter both had their Instagram accounts (laughs) hijacked. Really? Sorry, other way around. Facebook's Twitter and Instagram were both hijacked. Oh, okay. Their Facebook Instagram account. They're That's even company. funnier, actually, than I'd realized. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So there you go. They were taking over and were posting dodgy stuff. So that was good. That's so if it can happen to Facebook, don't feel too bad when you make a boo-boo. <laughs> okay, top tips. So believe it or not, the 11th of February was Safer Internet Day, which resulted in some nice pithy advice articles that I thought were worth linking to. These are the kind of links that you definitely can keep in your back pocket for friends and family. 
They're short, sensible tips. So five tips for you and your family on Safer Internet Day. And kind of also an important one for owners of small businesses, five tips for businesses on Safer Internet Day. So if you have a family business or whatever, or your family is involved in some sort of small business with you know a handful of employees, they actually need to think about security every bit as much as other members of your family. And it's nice to have five tips for them too. Okay. And then I managed to shoehorn this in because, of course, backup is a very important part of your security posture. And to back stuff up, what you need is hard drives to put things onto. Therefore, when you're going to buy a hard drive, you'd like to buy one that's least likely to explode. So, wouldn't it be great to know which ones actually do and don't live long in a massive big data center that really hammers hard drives, like, say, Backblaze's data center? Well, every year they release statistics on how all the different drives they run performed, and the 2019 stats are out, so you can see which manufacturers have high failure rates and which manufacturers have really good failure rates. It's interesting to me. I'm just uh, brought up the the graph and or the the mm-hmm. chart, and I, I've looked at this year over year, and Seagate is always bad compared to uh, HGST. And Toshiba and HGST always do well. Yeah, like the, I was. I've always noticed that, which is why I've been buying HGST drives for the last couple of years now. Because every time I go to this report, it's like, oh, HGST, they're doing well. I. I was so mad. I the last time I needed to buy one uh, a hard drive. I haven't bought a spinning hard drive in many years. But the last time I went to buy one, I went to the actually went to Best Buy and I got over there and I went, okay, okay. Uh, I got to remember the one that was really good from the uh, backplacing that was Seagate. <laughs> I got home with it. I went, oh man, I can't believe I did the exact opposite. Oh. <laughs> My memory failed me at the right t- wrong time. But uh, well, you knew Seagate stood out. Yep. They were exceptional. Yep, yep, they were exceptional. I, I'm surprised that they're not showing SSDs yet on Backblaze. It looks like these are hard drives. Yeah, but I wonder, are they running SSDs? Because for Backblaze, is speed all that important? Yeah, I don't know. But I would like this Capacity report is. for SSDs, right? Yeah, maybe we need some other company who does something else to give us that information. I'd love to know what happens inside like the AWS data centers. Yeah. They must be running. Some so serious stuff. It's also interesting over time. One of the one of the worst things you could do was have a three terabyte drive. Those were yeah. really unreliable because of the way they actually took a two terabyte drive and kind of made it into a three terabyte drive. And they, I see that that's not there anymore in their listing. Either they stopped buying them or they stopped getting made. I think a little bit of both because yeah, you're right. That's exactly what happened. They tried to squeeze more out of the existing two terabyte technology and they squeezed too hard. And it was really notable for a couple of years that all manufacturers who made three terabyte drives, they were all terrible. Didn't matter, you know, even the the ones from the good vendors, they were just terrible. Three terabyte drives were a train wreck. Yeah, and everything on Backblaze for 2019 is a, is a multiple of two. <laughs> that generally works better. Yeah. Yeah, computers like that. Okay, I have one explainer. Um, arguably, I could have put this one in and follow up. But anyway, we, we heard last time that Apple said that they one of the things they do is they intercept child abuse images and stuff on iCloud and in email and things. And if you're wondering, well, how did they do that? Forbes did a nice deep dive because due to a court filing, they were able to get a look inside because basically a child abuser who was using iCloud to share things is facing court case. And Apple have provided evidence of how they tracked them down and what they did, and therefore the evidence that is now being used in court for a conviction. Well, that's so that's as close to a good news story as I can get. So the 
<laughs> his child abuser caught on child abuse. Uh, you know? Yeah. So they're looking inside your emails at images. Mm, yes and no. So they're matching them. They're automatically matching them against hashes, which are provided by uh, government agencies oh, who monitor. Right. right, right, right. And then when the computer goes ping, then a human leaps in to make sure the computer isn't smoking proverbial crack. And then the authorities are contacted, if appropriate. So they can view the images in your emails. Is that because they have Absolutely the encryption they can. keys? No, it's because Intel is a protocol invented in the 70s and any email provider can see what you're sending by email because okay. it's unsecurable. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. The old postcard. Little postcards whizzing across the internet, exactly. Okay. That wasn't the palate cleanser, Okay, was so. <laughs> hmm? That wasn't the palate cleanser, was it? No, no, no. That's an excellent explainer. Okay. Um, then we have some interesting insights and then we cleanse our palate. So interesting insights. These are high quality investigative opinion and editorial content. So these are generally long reads. And I basically think if you're in the mood for getting really stuck in, I think these are really good, but you're going to have to make an investment in time. So basically the BBC did a great expose on Amazon and how they have monetized data to spectacular effect. So why Amazon knows so much about you is the title they went with. Uh, Vice did a an investigative piece, which if you use the popular email app Edison, you need to read this. How big companies spy on your emails? It's If you're an Edison user, this will not make you happy. Hmm. But the concept is much broader. So it's just interesting in general. Uh, and then again from Vice, leaked document shows how big companies buy credit card data on millions of Americans. And um, a whole bunch of household data was leaked about 120 million Americans, which is a story from UpGuard.com. Hmm. Okay, now we can cleanse your palate. Okay. So I have two podcasts to recommend. So the first of them is a specific episode that's... It's In fact, it's half of a specific episode, the first half, conveniently. So Apple Context Machine is a podcast done by the guys at the Mac Observer, and its topics are always Mac-related, but very varied. And episode 525, they spent the first half hour of the show discussing extremely well the difference between machine learning, or ML, and true artificial intelligence, or AI. Oh. Uh, it's... And it's a big deal because Apple are doing an awful lot of ML and we, in the media, throw around the word AI as if Siri's AI, but no, Siri's ML. And almost everything is in fact ML. There's no true AI out there. But it's fascinating, well-explained. It's basically, really, I was really impressed. So link in show notes. Subscribing right now. And then I wanted to recommend this series, but I hadn't quite found a hook to give me an excuse to. So oh, this Brian is a Chaffin. new series from the... Brian Rocks. Yeah, I mean, it's a fun show, the, the Apple Context Machine. How did I not know it's, about it? Sporadic that and multi topiced but that was a particularly good episode. So the next one I want to recommend is a new series of short episodes. They're released weekly. They're about 10 minutes long, and they're from the BBC World Service called World Wise Web. And they get youngsters, so basically teenagers who are trying to decide what they want to do for their careers, to interview people from tech history about their life's work. Oh, wow. So the episode, yeah, it was really cool. So the episode that I'm choosing to use here is an episode called, it's about um, a 
an annoyingly rare thing, an early female tech pioneer called Radia Perlman, who's known sort of fondly as the mother of the internet because she invented an extremely important protocol that makes the internet possible called Spanning Tree, which is a routing protocol. I read about her. Yeah, so she's interviewed... Well, she's cool. She she was a great interview. So she's interviewed by a teenage kid who's interested in tech. 10-minute episode, thoroughly enjoyable. And if you enjoy that episode, I would say subscribe to World Wide Web. They're not long, they're weekly. And so far, all of them have been really good. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There was some book. It was it was a book about women in tech where I'd heard about her. And, and it was fascinating learning how she, uh, how she got started and how she figured out uh, that technology. That's cool. I like the idea yeah. of kids interviewing, too. That's, um, that's awesome. It works really well. It, it works really well. And the kids are from all over the world because it's the BBC World Service. So there was a distinct Northern Irish accent in one of them and a distinct Indian accent in another. And I mean, it's, it's just really fun to have these young, energetic people from all over the world interviewing, you know, like the inventor of, of the MP3 player and stuff like that. Like, it's just, it's a really nice series, very professionally produced yeah. by well, the Well, and kids think of questions you don't think of. Right after our, our brains become yeah. congealed, right? Yeah, exactly. We get baked into patterns. Yeah. So yeah, I thoroughly recommend that podcast. The book I uh, read, I just found it is called Broadband: the Unto- the Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet by Claire Evans. Oh wow, is, I can is that believe- available as an audio book? Uh, yes, it is available as an audio book. I think I shall be listening to a few less podcasts and listening to a book. <laughs> well, I will put one of my Amazon affiliate links to that in the show notes. Excellent. There we go. Three palate cleansers now. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Bart. Well, this was fun. We had a lot, uh, a lot of good meat to go through. I enjoyed it. Excellent. So new format settling in well? Yeah, I like it. I still managed to drag you out to almost an hour, but uh, nobody has ever said Security Bits was too long. Yeah, and I don't mind the recording going long. The prep time is way shorter, and that's, trust me, that was always where the asymmetry was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, cool. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Indeed, and until then, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I think that's enough content, don't you? Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron like Andrew did and become the hero of the week? You can go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to, maybe you don't like these subscription things. Maybe you just want to make a one-time donation. You can do that by going to podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation, as I mentioned earlier, like Andrew did, you can join our Slack group at podfeed.com slash Slack. Or if you have the Facebook persuasion, there's always podfeed.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. We missed Rick tonight. Hope you're feeling better soon. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.